Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Acts, uh, chapter 15. We'll pick up where we left off uh, last week. And uh, as you're finding your place there, um, just uh, I want you to remember some of you, when you were a child, uh, or you had kids recently, when you have a newborn son uh, and he starts to grow up, and uh, at some point, most little kids, they get their own toolbox to match mom and dad or to match dads, right? So the idea is that as dad's outside in the garage doing his things, we learn to do manly things together. So your son gets like a, a, a set of plastic tools and uh, there's a reason why he gets a set of plastic tools. Because when you give a two-year-old a set of tools, they will take those tools and all of a sudden, if they have a hammer, everything becomes a nail, does it not? And so I had these memories growing up of, of both of my sons, they would, would see this little plastic hammer and they would just walk down the wall of the hallway and just start beating on the sheetrock as they go. And so we never gave them a, a real hammer because it would do like sufficient damage to the house. But when you give a little child a hammer, all of a sudden everything becomes a nail. Spiritually speaking, oftentimes within Christianity, we get the, the, the metaphorical hammer, so to speak. And every issue that comes up culturally, politically, theologically becomes a nail that we feel like we need to hit. Every issue, more often than not, in many people's minds, is a gospel issue in that we would consider sometimes wrongly so that every issue puts the gospel of Jesus and the kingdom of God at stake. Now, if you've ever lived in that life before, you know that that can be an extremely tiresome posture to live in. In the day and age of moral and cultural outrage, it is exhausting to view all of life, politically and spiritually, as an issue as if the kingdom of God is somehow at stake. Now, the thing that we wrestle with as Christians is that we know that we've been told by Paul that we're supposed to contend for the faith. We need to be able to defend it, to speak about it with clarity, to speak about it with precision. Yet, more so ever than today, is not just what we say and the truth that we contend for, but rather, I would say, how we go about saying those things is equally as important. And so I'm gonna do something this morning and I challenge you guys in a, in a different way. I'm gonna encourage you to put down your hammer for just a moment. And I'm gonna encourage you just to listen to how the early church dealt with conflict and wrestled with theological differences that existed within the church. And I think it's informative for us to see this because I think it's helpful and instructive for how we as Christians, walking in the faith, pursuing Jesus, are supposed to interact with one another. Not every theological issue is a gospel is at stake kind of issue. Those issues speak to and oftentimes inform the gospel, but sometimes we need to put the hammer down. And I think the way the church responds in Acts 15 is instructive for us. And so if you would look with me, beginning in verse one of Acts 15, the church is young, it's growing, they're having issues. And this is probably one of the more interesting chapters in the entirety of the book of Acts where it says this, but some men came down from Judea and they were teaching the brothers and they were teaching them that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, 
You cannot be saved. Unless you physically change your posture, change your behavior, you cannot be considered to be a part of the kingdom of God. There was an author many years ago that I think took this from from another gentleman earlier on, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, but he said, listen, the gospel is, is basically like this. Jesus plus nothing is what gives us everything. That there is nothing we can add to the gospel of Jesus, nor can we take away, nor can we multiply it out or divide it into that will actually lead us to a place where we have the gospel in, in its true essence. And so Jesus plus nothing, not church attendance, not righteousness, not holiness, not, not giving, not tithing, not serving, not being a staff member, a deacon, a, a Sunday school teacher, none of those things equate to us getting what only we can get through the gospel of Jesus. Jesus plus nothing equals everything for us. And in this moment in the life of the church, there was lack of clarity because at this point in the church, they were confused that these Gentiles were getting saved. And so as these Gentiles get saved and, and being a Jew didn't just mean you had certain beliefs, but it was everything. It permeated the culture. It, it was, you weren't just a Jew by faith. You were a Jew by, by your very essence. Everything that you did pointed to that identity that was found. And so all of a sudden these people outside of Judaism start to come to know the Lord. And the Jews in that moment are, are sort of like, hey, listen, if they're gonna really be a part of the kingdom, we need them to act like us a little bit more, talk like us a little bit more uh, and, and think like us a little bit more. And so in this moment, what they do is they pick one of 613 other Old Testament laws. They single this one out. Now, within Judaism, uh, there were over 613 plus or minus, depending on which Old Testament scholar you want to read. And out of these 600 plus laws, they were divided up into really three categories that I think are helpful for us. And the reason why you need to know this, because I think it's interesting that they singled out just one of them out of the 600. Like why this one out of all the other one, is this the one that we're going to sort of pick on? And so the Old Testament law sort of worked like this. There was what's known as the ceremonial law. So this was the prescription for, listen, when we come into the temple, here's how ceremonially we're gonna worship God. Here's the order, here's the basins, here's the, the things you're gonna say, here's the things you're not gonna say, here's where the priest can go, here's where you cannot go, here's what time of year you can go into there, and the rest of the year you gotta stay out here. Those were all the ceremonial. But there are also what's known as the civil laws. And this is what we see in the book of Deuteronomy and Exodus and elsewhere where there were disputes amongst neighbors. Somebody would, would have a cow that would wander across in their property or there was a dispute with territory. And so there were rules, uh, judicial rules, civil rules. This is how we treat one another. This is how we resolve those things. So you've got ceremonial and now you've got civil at 613. But you also have another category that existed, the, the moral law. And this is where we see like the 10 commandments. Like love the Lord your God, don't kill anybody, don't, uh, don't have adultery, don't commit adultery, uh, be honest, you know, speak the truth. I mean, these are the moral standards that, that really we even live by today. But in this moment, they picked this one obscure um, law that was more ceremonial and ritualistic by nature. And that if you're gonna be a part of the kingdom, you cannot, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so here's what Paul and Barnabas do. They start talking about it. And it says in verse two, they had no small uh, dissension and debate within them. So this was a robust argument and conversation. 
It had, they understood that it had far-reaching implications. And so some of the others were then appointed after the discussion to go up to Jerusalem where Peter was and say, hey, listen, can the church give us some clarity on, on what it is that we're supposed to do? We have a serious question and we need a serious response. And so they were sent on their way. They traveled through Phoenicia, Samaria. They described the detail of the conversation to the Gentiles and it brought great joy to all the brothers. I would imagine like the humor there is, is like the Gentiles are like, please, uh, we hope that y'all can resolve this so we don't have to go be circumcised. Like there was relief, I think there, uh, a little bit of humor that existed uh, within Luke's description here. And when they came to Jerusalem, it says they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the parts of the Pharisees began to rise up, the religious people who were caught and trapped in the ceremonial ritualistic rules of Judaism, rose up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So in other words, for the church at that point, they're saying, listen, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you have to do certain things. You have to maintain a, a, a sense of, of standard of, of living that, that we will basically, in essence, be the gatekeepers to this. Now, what are we supposed to do with that as Christians today? Well, the, the simple answer is this. Um, oftentimes when, when you've talked or I've spoken to uh, folks that I would consider atheistic or agnostic. So atheists just don't believe there is a God, there, that there's nothing when we're done. Um, agnostics, are, agnostics are like, well, there may be a God. We don't know that it's the God of the Bible. There, there's some kind of higher being out there. And, and so but I'm not sure that it's the God of, of revelation according to the Bible. And oftentimes what they'll do to, to point towards the hypocrisy of Christians, they will quote these obscure passages in Leviticus. And they'll quote things like not, not eating uh, a shellfish, staying away from pork. Uh, they'll, they'll throw in uh, just these other random laws in an attempt to sort of intimidate the Christian, I believe. But oftentimes the Christian doesn't know how to respond to those. And so the $100 question is, well, why do we choose some laws in the Old Testament and not others? And the answer to that is really quite simple that, that we should know to be able to arm ourselves. The laws that we follow in the New Testament, either Jesus spoke about or Paul mentions in his letters. So the reason why we would say the moral law, according to the, the Old Testament, the 10 commandments are still valid today is because one, Jesus affirms almost every single one of those. And if Jesus doesn't speak to it specifically, Paul mentions it at some point in the context of his letters. And then when it comes to the ceremonial and the civil, Jesus says, listen, I didn't come to do away with it. I fulfilled the law. And so your standard now is not so much getting caught up in this religious fervor of following all 613 rules. Your standard now is just be like Jesus. Like follow him. Embody the, the walk that he embodied. Like be like him. That's your goal. Because the reality is the reason why God gave all 613 laws is so that we would come to the place where we recognize that it is absolutely impossible for us to follow every law with perfect execution. So the reason he gives that to us is to point to the deficiencies that exist within us that we're incapable of doing these things. And therefore, we need somebody to come and rescue us. We need, therefore, a redeemer. 
And we don't add to that, we don't add to the salvation, the salvific work that Jesus embodies on the cross. And so they ask the question again in verse six, it picks up and it says, the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. After much debate, Peter finally stands up and notice what Peter says. Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, what Peter's talking about is a, is a time frame of reference. Do you remember when we talked about Cornelius getting saved by Peter in the book of Acts? What Peter is referring to is something that happened. There's a 10-year time span from the time that Cornelius gets saved to the time where he writes this and he stands up before the church and he preaches. And so Peter is saying, listen, you remember out of my mouth, the Gentiles, Cornelius, 10 years ago, would hear the word of God in the gospel and believe. In verse eight, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. So in other words, the Gentile gets the same spirit that the Jew gets, that there is no impartiality with them. In fact, in verse nine, he says this, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. In other words, in our sin, we're all on equal ground before God in our need for a savior and a redeemer, our need for the spirit of God to come in and take over. Now, therefore, verse 10, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to? to bear, but we believe we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So in other words, what Peter does, he says, listen, God comes in first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. He saves Cornelius. Cornelius gets the same spirit that, that I've got, that you've got, and God shows no impartiality towards that. Now I wanna make two observations about that point in the text. I don't want us to miss it. When he talks about impartiality not being shown, what he's saying is, is that we're all on equal footing when it comes to salvation. But what he's not doing in that moment that I've heard some preachers do and teachers do, and I've heard guys in books and elsewhere, what he's not doing is he is not minimizing the differences culturally that existed between them. He's not saying overlook the differences. He's just simply saying, um, salvifically, salvation-oriented, we're on the same footing. He's not minimizing the fact that Cornelius would have been of a different skin color. He's not saying you, you show him impartiality or partiality, you treat him as an equal. You don't judge him or condemn him. You don't show him favor. We're all on the same foot. So whether we're, we're black or white, whether we're Hispanic or Asian, like in Christ, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And listen, one of the beautiful things about the body, that when the gospel is displayed, it is displayed in the midst of a diverse group of people that come together to worship under the authority of the same God. We display the beauty of the gospel when we look and act and think and talk differently. All the while keeping ourselves rooted under the scripture in what it gives. Now, after verse 11, what happens is they begin to talk. They, they, there's some things that happen, but our time doesn't permit us to sort of walk through this. And when you jump to verse 19, you can see the response of ultimately what they decided that they were going to do. So he stands up again and he says, listen, therefore, 
In light of this big question that we're asking, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but rather we write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled from blood. So the answer to the question, do I have to be circumcised to be considered a part of the kingdom of God? The church definitively answered no. Why? Because Jesus plus nothing equals everything in the life of the believer. That we can't earn our right standing before God. And listen, we can't lose our right standing before God as well. That the gospel is not about how tightly I can hold on to God, but rather rightly understood the gospel is understanding that God has his eternal grip on me and he will not let go. And so we rest in that. We rest in that truth. But I want you to notice the posture of the church When they make the statement in 19, listen, it's my judgment that we should not trouble them with this issue, but there are some things in their life that we would like to ask as a way of showing grace towards their Jewish brothers that are having a hard time. And they begin to list a couple of things. Now, I wanna make this observation because I've never noticed this in the text ever before. I don't know how many times I've read through the book of Acts. When they identify the corrective behavior for the Gentile. They are not talking about moral issues, but rather what's happening here is they are speaking to the rituals that they were caught up in in their religion. And I wanna show you why that's important and what that means. And so if you look at the text and they say, listen, we're we're gonna be saved this way, but listen, you're gonna tell them to abstain from the things that have been polluted by idols. And so the worship of the Gentile in this moment, they would come to the altar, they would lay these these foods as an offering to their, their God, whoever that God was, even the unknown God at that point, and they would sacrifice over it, they would sprinkle things on it, they would burn incense for it, it was polluted. It was something that had been dedicated to a false, unknown God. And so they're just simply saying, listen, it's too much for them to handle at this point. Just just walk away from that. And then he says, listen, I want you to abstain from sexual immorality. You may say, well, that's a moral thing, isn't it? Well, it is a moral thing, but more specifically, this was intimately connected with their worship. And so when a Gentile would come to the temple and they would worship, there would be temple women and men there to service their physical needs. And so they would lay with, with the, the, the woman or the man at the altar of the temple, oftentimes on display. It was as pagan as you could possibly be. And so the church is like, listen, my Gentile friends, like, this is not a good idea. Like, this doesn't like bear witness in, in your religion. Like you, you've missed it somehow. But now that you know Christ, we've got to move away specifically from these things. It was caught up in the ritual. And then he says those things that have been strangled and from blood. Now, what does this teach us by way of, of application this morning? I think it teaches us something profoundly important. God tells us we are to love him first and then we are to love who second? People, Right? Love God, love people. It's really simple. The the great commission and the great commandment. Like go therefore and and, and love these people, love God first, but then come around side and love people. People are our what here? They're our mission, right? We're called to love people. Not, Not the program, the people. The people that exist within the midst of these walls that are in our city. We're a church for the city. We are called to love people. When I make the statement we should love people, understand this. The statement, we should love people, is a theologically rooted statement. There is doctrine that drives that discussion on what it means to love people. 
and how I'm supposed to love people. How do I care for them? How do I nurture them? How do I bring them along? However, even though that's a theological premise, loving people rooted in theology, don't miss this by way of application. Do not let your love of theology exceed your love for people. If you are growing in your understanding of who God is, you ought to be growing in your understanding and love for people. And if you're not growing in your love for people, listen to me, friend. This is the most pastoral thing I can say to you and as pastorally toned as I possibly can be, you're doing it wrong then. Your theology is messed up. Because if we don't demonstrate an ability to love God accurately has been revealed in the scriptures and that doesn't then in turn cause us to love other people, then our theology is messed up and it needs to change. But I'll even go a couple steps further than that. We also must learn to love people amid our theological differences. We must learn to love people even in the midst of our theological differences. Our our world, not just our country, is on fire. (laughs) And if you're like, no, it's pretty good, like you're not watching the news, you're clearly not on Twitter because everything is a dumpster fire on Twitter these days. And what I think the world needs more so now than ever is that as they look in, and, and John tells us this elsewhere, they, they will know us by how we love and care for one another. So when a watching world looks inside the walls of a church, when, when inside the walls of the church we're spatting and arguing and, and pushing and, and shoving and we've got our hammers picked up and we're bopping each other on the head over maybe nuances that exist within the gospel, we have to learn to love people amidst theological differences. That goes for our church, that goes for our city, that goes for our country that goes for our convention that we're a part of. We need to be kinder. We need a, the day of, of decorum and civility to sort of come back. And, and Travis Avenue needs to lead the way in doing that and exemplifying that with how we talk about things. But as we pursue faithfulness in the gospel, we have to understand that faithfulness means at times we're gonna contend for the faith, but then other times we're gonna be much more gentle and subtle in our, in our investigation So at times where we need to speak up and to be bold and and contend at the university, uh, in the street, um, we need to contend for good doctrine and, and sound doctrine. But yet at times we've got to give space for people oftentimes to come along to like catch up with us, that our, our wheels are going so fast. Not, not every issue, uh, is the kingdom of God at stake. We contend for it, yes, we defend it when necessary, absolutely, but some of us need to lay our hammers down on Twitter and Facebook and just set it down and just let it be because I, listen, me personally, my house, we believe in the sovereignty of God in my home. I believe God is sovereign and his kingdom, according to the scriptures, is not at stake, friend. His kingdom has nothing to do with the the political season and current that we're in. His kingdom, according to the word, no matter who's in what office, at what branch, who controls what, wherever we are, God's kingdom is not at stake. Does that mean we don't contend for what is right? We better. 
Does that mean we speak towards injustices? Absolutely we do. At times we need to emphasize the things that are obvious according to the text and at other times we need to put on a posture of of exploring the, the subtle nuances that often exist within the Bible. There is a time to fight and there are certain hills we must never surrender. And I wanna clarify this morning. I don't wanna preach this abstract sermon and you walk away going, well, what, what do we fight for? Like, where is that? And so I wanna speak with some precision and I wanna try to give as much clarity as I possibly can. So about 15 years ago, there was an article written by Dr. Al Mohler and it was just entitled Theological Triage. And what Dr. Moeller was attempting to do was he was trying to identify out of a three-tier system, what are the top, the top tier being, um, this is what it means to be a Christian. Fundamentally, you have to hold to these views to be considered an orthodox Christian. And what I mean by that is a Christian that would fall in line historically with, with the church for almost 2,000 years. That's orthodoxy. What does the church generally agree and what does the scripture teach? The second tier would just simply be something like denominational differences, and what the splits are. And then the third, these are just things that, hey, listen, we can be friends, we can attend the same church, we can fellowship at the same house, and we're just okay that we might have some subtleties to some interpretations of some very difficult texts that exist within the scripture that we wrestle with. So tier one, this is what it looks like. I think it includes things like the Trinity. The church has historically affirmed the Trinity. It's historically affirmed the full deity and the humanity of Jesus. Historically, it's affirmed justification by faith. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. It's affirmed, and which is what I think the one that everything uh, sort of sits under is the authority of scripture, that scripture is our guide, not experience, not our vantage point, but the authoritative, sufficient, infallible word of God guides us. But then also I think the understanding historically within Orthodox Christianity, the, the Bible is clear Church history is clear and the definition of marriage and and gender responsibilities. There is a male and and there is a female according to God's order. The church has traditionally always understood these things to be just that. But tier two is a little bit different because it begins to sort of weed in or wade into just things like denominational distinctions, the meaning and mode of baptism. Believer's baptism. We don't baptize babies, why? Why? Because we believe that the Bible teaches that you have to come to faith in Christ first before you are baptized. And we don't sprinkle because we believe that the word baptizo in the Greek, it literally means immersion. It means to dunk you all the way under and just hope that you hold your breath long enough and the preacher brings you back up. You know, back in the olden days when they would dunk people, they would sort of hold them down. If they were a really sinful person, you would sort of just hold them under that water, right? And just cleanse them until they start shaking and flail on their feet. And then you'd bring them up. But baptism by immersion, order of salvation, things like church governance, and then tier three would be things like eschatology, the return of Christ. Now, I know if you're a dispensationalist out there, you take issue with me putting this on a tier three. Come at me, bro. I'm ready for you later, okay? Come at me. I taught a whole two two months before COVID on, on end times eschatology. I'm ready for you, okay? It used to be this was a very divisive issue. Very divisive, is not so much anymore. Interpretation of difficult texts. Now here's one of the things I think is interesting from a theological standpoint. When you look at tier two, and I say the meaning and mode of baptism, you know that that used to be a tier one 
back in the day. So we go to a Baptist church. Our forefathers were really a group called the Anabaptists. And then about the 1500s, uh, there was this dissension that began to arose within the life of the early church. And there was this famous Anabaptist by the name of Felix Mons. And Mons's predecessor was a guy named Zwingli who controlled the, the city and, and he was sort of the resident theologian and politician. And so religion and politics were deeply intertwined in this area at this moment. Well, Mons began to later believe that in order, as the church was being reformed by Martin Luther and Calvin and these guys, he began to believe if we're gonna be faithful to scripture, we need to stop baptizing babies and we need to only baptize people that have made a profession of faith in Christ. And so he goes against the reformers who were reforming the Catholic church. He sort of takes it a step further. Well, you wanna know what Mons's punishment for that was, according to Zwingli? Death. And so Zwingli's like, look, dude, um, you either need to repent of this sin of saying that you have to be baptized by believer's baptism or we're gonna kill you. He's like, I'm not gonna do it. But like, fine, we're gonna kill you. Tomorrow morning, we're gonna tie your hands up. We're gonna put a big stick behind your elbows, behind your legs. We're gonna canoe you out into the middle of this frozen river alongside Zwingli's priest who was like, listen, man, just repent, just recant, just give it up and we'll let you live. And he's like, nope, not gonna do it. Sorry, convicted of this. This is what the Bible teaches. Lord, into your hands, I commend my spirit. They dump him in the river and drown him and kill him. And there's a whole host of stories of Anabaptists early on in the 1500s who died over believers' baptism. Now, I asked Dr. Johnny Derwin in the first service if he was willing to die over believers' baptism. And let me just tell you, I'm concerned our newly hired discipleship minister, he hesitated. I told him afterwards, I think I might hesitate as well, at least for that issue and, and, and dying, even though I think it's deeply important and significant. And so what do we do with this, this morning? If I were to encapsulate this message into one issue, into one overarching way of application, I, I, think, it's, I think it's this. Being passionate about our theology, understanding it, contending for it, but making sure that as we contend for the faith, that we do everything we can to love people along in the process. My first two years in the senior pastorate position were the two hardest years of my life. Day one at our church in South Dallas, I preach my first Sunday after you call and I get an email from a gentleman who's about 10 years older than me, and he began to pick apart my sermon and began to tell me everything that I'd got wrong in my sermon. I was like, all right, bro. So I read his email. I think that day I spent two or three hours trying to respond. I went back and listened to my sermon, tried to correct it. Thought, okay, well, we're good. I think I've owned where I could, or I could have been more clear here, more precise. Fine, week goes by, go preach my second sermon. Monday morning, turn on my email. Got another email from him, same guy. Different issues this time, but he began to sort of just pick it apart. He's got his hammer. Third week goes by. Get to church on Monday, got another email from him. Responded again, two or three hours. Answered all of his questions, went back. I, at one point in one of my email correspondences, I don't even remember what we were, we were talking about. I viewed it as we kind of got a little bit combative towards the end. And I said, uh, for you New Testament scholar guys, you'll know these names. I said, well, listen, uh, well, it just so happens that uh, Howard Marshall, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, and Gordon Fee, three of the most prominent New Testament scholars that have ever existed, 
F.F. Bruce being like the godfather of New Testament theology, Howard Marshall, who took his place after F.F. Bruce died, happened to agree with my interpretation as well. And I think his response was like, never heard of those guys, doesn't matter. It's like, bro. So eventually, one of my wiser, older elders came alongside me. I was telling him what was going on. I showed him the emails. This went on for months. He said, listen, the best thing you can do is you, you need to cut him off. You be a pastor to him when he's, when he's with you, but he's not gonna put his hammer down. In fact, it's sort of verging on, on a little bit of a, an abusive, emotionally manipulative relationship that existed there. And I didn't see it at the time, but just, I was young, didn't know. I, I couldn't even grow a beard. I was 29 years old. I don't even have facial hair. How was I supposed to argue with this guy? And he said, he's not gonna put his hammer down. You put it down for him. Here's my challenge for you this morning. We contend for the faith, but people who pick up hammers often view people as obstacles in their way to get what they want. And so for some of you this morning, my my point of application to draw it home is just simply, it's time for you to put your hammer down. Be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving to one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Put on the spirit of humility, cloak yourself with the righteousness of Christ and walk in truth and in the spirit. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us forgiveness of sins in Jesus. Lord, we we really do wanna be able to contend for our faith when those times come, but Lord, in a world that everything's on fire and and everything is wrong, we, we want to be peacemakers. We don't wanna be naive. We don't wanna cower down. We wanna speak up when we're supposed to speak up, but Lord, help us love people better. Help us love our theology and our, our, our understanding of you, Lord, but let us not neglect the habit of, of being with one another and caring for one another showing kindness to one another. Lord, if there are any here in this room today that have never confessed with their mouth that you are Lord, not believed in their heart that you were raised up, I pray that today would be their day of salvation. But Lord, for the church this morning, I I ask that you would just help us. Like, Lord, what hammers do I need to put down if I've just been railing on that I'm not getting anywhere? Is Is it doing any eternal good? If you've called us to that, do it. Lord, I think some of us need to just lay some things down and just trust in your sovereignty and your kingdom to not be naive, but to just wait on you. Father, there is salvation in no one but your son, Jesus. So through your spirit now in this time, Lord, would you just invade this space? You are sovereign in this room. As we sing about the goodness of your son Jesus in Christ alone is my salvation. Help us respond now in kind, we pray in Christ's name. You stand and sing as the Lord leads. I'll be down front. We'd love to pray for you, over you. Let's respond as the Lord.